0: Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Before we begin, I just wanted to let listeners know that this show was pre-recorded on December 9th, 2016, and so we will not be taking phone calls today. So our show today is about the impacts of climate change on waterfront towns and infrastructure and how towns can prepare and hopefully adapt to those changes before they cause irreparable damage. In recent years, municipalities are finding that increased storms and flooding are wreaking havoc on waterfront infrastructure like piers, wharves, roads, waterfront businesses and homes and more. Emergency preparedness is also at risk because evacuation routes sometimes run right through the flood zone and lots of other reasons too that we'll learn about today. In the studio with me today, are folks who have been working hard to help municipalities, residents and local communities and organizations deal with these kinds of hazards. So my guests today, and I'm excited to have you folks here today to help us learn more about these issues. We have Judy East from the Washington Council, from the Washington County Council of Governments. Hi, Judy. Hi, Natalie. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming. We have Tora Johnson from the University of Maine at Machias. Hi, Tora. Good to be here. Great thanks. to have you. And we have Jennifer Hi. Curtis from the Maine Floodplain Management Program. Hi, Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. And we have Pete Slavinsky from the Maine Geological Survey.
1: Hi, hey, Pete. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great, it's great to have all of you guys. Um, so let's start by kind of um, getting oriented to what are um, the climate change hazards that we're seeing uh, in our waterfront communities. What are we looking at? Let's try to get sort of a frame of what kinds of issues people are seeing on the coast. Pete, let's start with you.
1: Well, I think one of the most apparent issues that people are seeing on the coast um, that, that relates to climate change is is flooding. Uh, and that sometimes comes in the case of what we call nuisance flooding or just when the tide reaches a certain level it floods out a road or a section of of a pier or a wharf or something like that um and of course that's compounded by uh some of the other events that can occur like storms uh, that drive flooding um, storm events that specifically drive flooding and adding to all that is the fact that sea level is rising uh, it's rising over the long term And there are abrupt changes that can occur. You know, most people think of sea level rise as a long-term, slow increase in in sea level, but we can have abrupt changes that occur on periods of months to back in 2010, we had sea levels that were about six inches higher in the Gulf of Maine uh, than normal for a period of six months out of the year. Um, So it's not something that necessarily is a really, really slow thing that can occur. Generally it is occurring slowly. Um, but one thing to note is that with one foot of sea level rise, if we have that, the impacts of a 100-year storm, which is from our February 1978 storm for most of Maine, um, could, be a fact, could be felt at a 10-year recurrence interval, which is kind of interesting. And then, of course, compounding all that is precipitation. Um, we've seen increases in precipitation of about 25% for most of coastal Maine since 1958. Uh, so you put all these things together, and you end up with the problems that we're seeing today uh, at the working waterfronts.
0: And um, Pete, tell us a little bit about what you do at the Maine Geological Survey.
1: Sure. I'm a marine geologist uh, of the Maine Geological Survey in the Department of Agriculture, Conservation, and Forestry. And uh, I work specifically looking at sea level rise and erosion issues uh, and do a lot of research around that. But I spend a lot of my time working directly with communities, uh, mostly in southern and midcoast Maine, on... um, kind of educating around sea level rise and storm surge and and working to help communities actually adapt to the impacts of sea level rise and storm surge.
0: Great, great,
2: thanks. Um, Jen, you
0: also work with the state of Maine. Tell us a little bit about what you do at the Floodplain Management Program.
2: Sure, so uh, the Floodplain Management Program is also at the Department of Agriculture, Conservation, and Forestry. Um, We act um, on behalf of municipalities and the public in Maine, to reduce flood risk and uh, often that entails working with FEMA um, through Region 1. Um, And a lot of what's been going on lately is updated flood mapping and that's what I've been involved in uh, principally since I've been there. Um, There's been um, countywide updates along the coast uh, occurring in Maine Uh, so far. Uh, Sagatahawk, Lincoln, Waldo, Knox, and Hancock County all have gotten uh, updated floodplain maps in in the last few years. Can you explain what a floodplain map is? Absolutely. Um, So what what I'm referring to when I say floodplain map, it's actually called a flood insurance rate map. Um, They depict the 1% annual chance, also known as the 100-year flood or the base flood and um, it shows the area that will flood uh, during that event and those maps are used for regulatory purposes at the community level the communities adopt the maps into their ordinance and that um, gets incorporated into their um, planning process so that when they issue building permits and such they they use these maps to determine how uh, buildings should be built or if they can be built um, In certain places and then also they're used as the name implies for flood insurance rating purposes and they can also be used for for planning purposes um, in the community great thanks
0: Uh, let's work our way a little bit further down east and uh, hear a little bit about what our other two guests do Um, Tora you're at the University of Maine at Machias tell us a little bit about what you do there related to climate change works. So
3: I run the computer mapping laboratory, the Geographic Information Systems Laboratory there, and I'm a social scientist. And what we do, my students and I do, is to work with communities, primarily local communities, right in down east Maine, in trying to understand um, uh, complex problems, because ultimately climate change is a very complex problem. And uh, provide tools, often maps and other kinds of tools, to allow them to understand and make informed decisions about uh, about their future. Um, we very recently have uh, we've worked for many years actually with the Washington County Council of Governments um, providing. Decision support tools like maps and and uh, map analysis and that sort of thing that help to, for instance, merge flood floodplain maps with um, other uh, with infrastructure, etc., all into one place so folks can look at that stuff on a single map and understand how threats and resources interact. Um, Most recently we've begun at the University of Maine at Machias a new initiative called the Machias Bay Initiative. We have a number of different elements to it, but we're um, focusing uh, primarily on Machias Bay and the fisheries in Machias Bay, most uh, significantly the shell fisheries, which are currently closed due to a, a paralytic shellfish poisoning threat. And we're seeing an increase in the number of closures as, uh, as a result of these threats. We're seeing um, a new species, so pseudo is a species that hasn't really been a threat down east and has been slowly building uh, uh, over the, uh, in recent years, and we believe that that threat is increasing due to climate change. And so um, Pseudonychia, this new critter, it's a diatom, uh, was has not been a threat until recent years. Um, marine scientists have been seeing it appearing in um, local waters, and we have uh, now seen the first closures as a result of it. And so that um, uh, ocean acidification, so in- increasing um, acidity of, of water, challenging the metabolisms of, of species like clams and potentially uh, lobsters, et cetera, are concerns. And so um, what we do is to try and help uh, communities and decision makers and folks in state government understand
0: what the issues are, where those issues are, and how to address them. Great. Great. So you're looking at ecological issues related to climate change as well as infrastructure. Yes,
3: yeah, and translating that into actionable information, things that people can
0: do. Great, great. And Judy, you're with the Washington County Council of Governments and you work really closely with communities on all kinds of issues including hazards related to climate change. We do. Uh,
4: The Council of Governments is the regional planning agency for Washington County, so my uh, my boss, my board, my client base, if you will, are the towns themselves, the municipalities. And so it, it runs the gamut from um, co- local comprehensive plans, shoreline zoning ordinances. We coordinate with the various state agencies who are, are here today and others. We help towns um, with grant writing to get money to build infrastructure that helps with climate resilience. Um, and I, I think that in a nutshell, the... The way I summarize what I do is is that I help towns make decisions. I, ha- I, get, I help them get information, I help them digest information, uh, I help them get mapping uh, support from Torah and her students, um, provide facilitation services for community meetings, and so we're not making the decisions for towns, we're helping
0: them with getting the information in order to make the decisions for themselves. Great, great. So you guys are all um, front and center, either working with towns or working in creating support tools at the state level, um, where you're hearing a lot of the stories of what's happening related to impacts um, on our coastal communities. What, let, let's, let's sort of paint some pictures. What are you seeing? What are you hearing in terms of... Um, climate change impacts and sort of community vulnerability that you're hearing about on the in the communities in which you work or at the state level.
1: Um, well I guess I can I can try to tackle that first. Great. But, uh, one of the one of the things that a lot of the communities that we're working with are seeing and trying to address uh, again is nuisance flooding. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's that that daily high tide or, or monthly high tide that's reaching and, and flooding out of road or something like that. And it's giving them a picture of what a future condition may actually be um, on a more frequent basis. So they're starting to get concerned about that. And, and they called it a nuisance flooding. Yeah, nuisance flooding. And it's, it's literally, you know, maybe a couple hours where the road is submerged uh-huh. uh, or you just can't pass through that section of road, where people have learned to move their cars from a parking lot if it floods, things like that. And but that's it's just
0: it's, at a regular high tide, yeah. any day of the year. Yep.
1: But what it's doing is it's painting a picture uh, because, you know, there's good scientific evidence showing that sea level is rising that that is going to become a more and more frequent event. Um, in fact, if, you know, with minimal amounts of sea level rise, what we consider nuisance flooding in in, in big cities like Portland that, that have areas that go underwater quite frequently, um, there'd be a tenfold increase in the nuisance flooding um, from the areas that flood now with a minimal amount of sea level rise. Um, and I, I think... What, what Judy brought up earlier in terms of engaging municipalities and giving them the tools and data to make decisions, I think that's really important in tackling this issue because we are a home rule state, and it's municipalities that are on the forefront of this issue, regardless of what's happening at the state or federal levels. Um, they are the ones grabbing the bull by the horns and realizing that they have to do something about this issue, otherwise the, the, you know, the, the, the life that we've had on the waterfront may be quite different as we move forward into the future, and that might happen regardless. Um, but that and critical infrastructure. A lot of communities are thinking about how their critical infrastructure should be sited or is it sited properly in the face of a changing climate.
0: And by critical infrastructure, do you mean like schools and fire department?
1: Uh, a lot of the work that we've been involved in relates to um, wastewater treatment plants. Okay. And looking at how resilient they are to existing and potential future storms. Uh, because if your a wastewater treatment plant goes out, Number one, you're dumping raw sewage into uh, whatever water body you're, you're near. Uh, and then number two, it's pretty hard for your uh, community to get, to get back to normal. Um, so it's, uh, it's a key piece of infrastructure that's being looked at by a whole slew of uh, towns in mid-coast and southern Maine, um, along with other just working waterfront infrastructure and things like that.
4: I agree. And, and if you think about just envision your town all the way up the coast those wastewater treatment plants are right along the shorefront. Almost all of them are highly vulnerable. Um, Then there are also uh, areas that wash out uh, on a frequent basis and are doing so more often. And, um, you know, whether there's disagreement on the cause, there's, uh, from what I've seen, universal understanding that we're dealing with higher frequency, more intense precipitation, and uh, washouts of culverts and the, a, a need to address this. And so a couple of the towns that uh, we're working with now have applied for the um, culvert bond funds. And there's been an interesting and very constructive movement in understanding where these culverts that are uh, approved from the culvert bond, are called, they're called open-bottom arched culverts, and they're built at 1.2 times the bank width. And in doing that, you address habitat issues very well, uh, because you're sort of mimicking the natural stream flow. But what we've seen, and Project Share in down East Maine has done a lot of this, these installations, is that the open-bottom arched culverts are also very effective for these extreme um, precipitation events. They have withstood some very, very large storms in the last decade, I guess it is, um, whereas some of the older technology has, has
0: washed out. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to paint a picture for our listeners who might not really be picturing what a culvert is, it's quite literally the pipe that enables the stream to go under the, the road. Am mm-hmm. I correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so these open bottom
4: arched culverts are, they are more expensive. But in the long run, you have solved the problem without creating one that you have to fix, you know, in five years with the next large storm event. So they, they're really, really proving their worth. Uh, and the investment
1: yeah what's happening is the whole engineering behind these things is changing because of changing climate basically so the traditional culverts are designed to handle rain amounts for certain recurrence interval storms so a ten year event, means you know it's a ten percent chance of occurring in a given year in terms of a a certain amount of precipitation falling a lot of you know smaller culverts are ten or twenty five year sized culverts so they're meant to pass only a certain amount of rain and could fail over that, and because the the target for um, engineering standards has moved quite a bit uh, because of that 25 percent increase, roughly, in terms of the amount of precipitation we'd be getting over a certain amount of time in those recurrence interval events, the sizes of culverts have to change to keep up with the change in climate that we're seeing. So um, the engineering standards are changing to keep up with the fact that. Number one, they need to pass more water. But like Judy said, number two, we're actually also creating a much more beneficial environment for the critters, whether they're fish or salamanders, whatever, to be able to naturally pass through these areas when before they'd have to literally jump out and try to swim through a tiny, tiny, you know, 10-inch culvert or something like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's, it's changing quite a bit. Yeah.
3: Um, another... Uh At some point, we're on the question of of impacts that people are seeing. And I think one really critical thing that's having a a very significant effect is the changing in um, things like distribution of lobster and the timing of the movements inshore and offshore for lobster. Uh, That's something that's been changing pretty radically. We've seen uh, the shell disease coming up from uh, down south. And scientists are, you know, are coming to understand that that those changes are uh, due to changing temperatures, and that's having a number of effects. Um, it's changing the way the fishery has to operate, and when the money comes in and when it doesn't. Um, Where, and there, some of them are beneficial. There's less. Um, there's. <clears throat> Virtually no lobster fishery left in the southern end of the of the range of the lobster, which is good for Maine's industry. But it also um, a lot of lobstermen that I've spoken to are concerned about what that means for their own future, because they can see it coming um, toward the north. And one of the effects that that has had, in addition to you know sort of moving the pieces on the board of the of the one of the industries that we really depend on here is it's made a lot more people very keenly aware of, of, of localized effects of climate change. You, you, know, you can sort of go about your daily business in many of these resource-based industries and see the effects of climate change happening. And, and so um, that's starting to get folks thinking about, okay, if this is how rapidly things are changing and this is how they're changing, how do we need to adapt to change as the new normal? Um, which gets at the, um, the changing engineering standards as well. Yeah.
0: If you're just tuning in, um, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Our topic today on Coastal Conversations is how waterfront municipalities prepare and observe what's happening related to climate change. And uh, my guests today are Judy East from the Washington County Council of Governments, Tora Johnson from the University of Maine at Machias, Jennifer Curtis from Maine Floodplain Management Program at the state, and Pete Slavinsky from the Maine Geological Survey. And this is Natalie Springle with Coastal Conversations. Um, So we've talked a little bit about some of the things that we're seeing in some of our communities, whether it's changes in ecological patterns or... Um, Changes to how we have to sort of engineer our um, culverts and the way that we handle floods. What are some of the tools that you guys have, um, I know all of you in very different ways have been involved in creating tools for municipalities and others to try to address climate change impacts. So Jen, let's start with you. What are some of the tools that you guys at the Floodplain Management Program have been providing?
2: Thanks. Uh, So one very basic tool that we've got available, it's on the Maine Flood Plain Management Program website. Um, The easiest way to get to that is is just to search it or uh, we can make it available to you, Natalie, so you can share it. Um, There's something called the Maine Flood Hazard Map. And what that is, it's an interactive application that you can use with any browser. um, And it will, you can type in your address and it'll, uh, provide you with different layers that you can click on and off, and the layers include uh, the preliminary floodplain data if it's if it's if your community is in the preliminary stage of uh, updating their floodplain maps, or the final data that's available for your community. And um, the FEMA maps will host the final data as well. But one thing that's helpful about our site, we also include parcel data, um, so that can be additionally helpful, especially to some of the smaller communities without a lot of GIS Can uh, you explain what that means, providing parcel data? Sure. So, uh, what that means is you can look um, at a specific map and lot as drawn on the ground um, and see how it relates to the flood zone. So um, it's particularly helpful when the maps are changing, and people want to see um, what you know the changes are to their particular property or to their community. Um, Great. So, Does that answer it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I also just want to add quickly. Um, I really appreciate, uh, as you know, some of these folks have mentioned the the science that's going into uh, the climate change impacts. And I've heard a lot of it myself. I, I have the pleasure of listening to a lot of hydrogeologists and hydrologists talk about modeling and rainfall curves and um, you know, sea level rise uh, issues and things. And you know, there's a lot of great data supporting it. But um, none of that data out into the future is being incorporated into the floodplain maps. They only incorporate you know, that amount of climate change or sea level rise that has already occurred. So it's just historic data. Uh, that's in the floodplain map modeling.
0: And Tor, I'm going to ask you as one of the cartographers at the table. Though I think we have several map makers yeah. at the table. Well, <laughs> we're all about maps. You're yeah. all maps. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we can ask the other mappers. So, so these maps that create sort of projections of what might it look like if we had this much sea level rise yeah. over time, they're based on historical data of what we see, what we have seen in the past. How 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 is that data? Created.
3: So, and, um, so I've done less mapping of uh, sea level rise, and I might let Pete handle that. Um, one of the things that we've been uh, looking at, we, and, and we actually have uh, a set of storm surge scenarios, so um, storm surge maps based on, uh, um, on hurricane models built by the National Weather Service that we've incorporated into interactive maps that towns in Washington County can use to determine um, what areas, what specific resources uh, like roads and infrastructure, like wastewater treatment plants, and uh, any any coastal infrastructure might be inundated by a storm surge. Um, The models that we used uh, were they were based on um, past uh, the storms that actually happened. So the, the storm surge um, models that we incorporated came from the National Weather Service um, based on a model for a storm that tracked uh, with the, the eye going up Penobscot Bay. And so the storm, you know, covering essentially the state of Maine centered on Penobscot Bay. And they modeled, uh, f- uh, what is it, eight different... Uh, forces of storms so category one or eight different versions category one two three and four uh storms so really mild relatively mild hurricanes to really really strong hurricanes and um coming ashore at high tide and at mean tide so at a sort of average tide time or at high tide and then um The National Weather Service gave us estimates. They said, okay, in this area, we think there'll be a 12-foot storm surge in this scenario. And what we did was to take um, highly detailed elevation um, uh, maps of the coast of, of Washington County and flood them. I'm making air quotes in the air that your listeners can't hear. Um, so we've, we pretended to flood them and then made maps that are interactive that people can um, access on the web that have uh, the ability to swap base maps so they can put an aerial base map under it and say, oh, there's my house. Um, they can add uh, lots of different infrastructure and that sort of thing, um, turn different storm scenarios on and off and, um, and that has allowed folks uh, in down-east Maine to start making changes, like um, knowing, for instance, that essentially uh, the town of Machiasport, which, which it straddles the bay and is on two peninsulas, right, um, that both peninsulas would be cut off in many of those storm surge scenarios. The roads would be flooded, and they'd be cut off after any flood if the road is damaged during a flood. Mm-hmm. So that was not something that they knew before we had made these maps and used these models. And it allowed them to start saying, oh, well, we better get a, a, you know, an ambulance and a fire truck on the other side of that, that flooded road before the storm and, and to start rethinking... Um, uh, evacuation routes and, and shelters and that sort of thing, and so it's, um, been ab- it's been able to provide people who didn't have access to this sort of information um, with tools that you know they can select their scenarios and their, and we can discuss with them what their, what the relative risks are, um, and you know help them make decisions. Um,
0: so uh, that's. Judy, I know you've been involved with the Washington County Council of Governments with a lot of this work too. How has this been different than some of the ways that you've helped communities plan in the past? Well, I think the, the targeting of it is
4: a little different. Um, the, the interaction, uh, when, uh, when Toro was developing this work, uh, first of all, the information was coming at us, the, the detailed LIDAR, as, as it's called, Uh, highly um, detailed and accurate elevation data was literally being developed as Torah and her students were developing these models and we took them out on the road as it were to the Five, we, we've organized the maps by five of the um, coastal uh, reaches of Washington County. And so we would t- we took them on the road, we showed people what we were finding, we asked them, what kind of information do you want to be able to see uh, in order to make your decisions? And so that helped us tweak uh, what the maps would depict and, and how we would present the models, whether on paper, whether online. Um, so we're, you were reaching out to... Harbor-masters, Harbor Masters, Absolutely, Harbor Masters, but where we found that we had the greatest uh, uh, level of, uh, of concern and interest and need was with first responders. <laughs> so it was the fire chiefs and um, uh, the emergency management director countywide. And then there's, there's since 9 11, I mean, there is a very extensive network. Uh, and very well-connected and, and highly uh, important, very good communication among the first responder network. So um, that's who we reached out to, and we got some very good information back from them. And and Tora has continued to work with Mike Heinerman, the Emergency Manage- Management Director for Countywide, um, talking about um, uh, evacuation routes and uh, some of the work that, that TORA does, not only are we lo- working with the output of, it's called SLOSH, which is such a great acronym, um, <laughs> yeah. model for um, storm surge associated with um, overland, uh, what's it called? What does it stand for? Sea,
1: lake and overland surge from hurricanes.
4: Sea, land, overland surge <laughs> from hurricanes, I love it.
0: All, uh, let's, let's say it again. Sea, say it again. Sea
1: lake and overland surge from hurricanes.
0: And it's a modeling system that you use to assess yeah, it's when these changes happen. NOAA. Yeah, developed by
1: NOAA. The National Weather Service and the NOAA the National Hurricane Center developed it to be able to simulate what worst case scenarios would be along the coast in terms of flooding from a Category 1 through all Well, I do it through 5 but Maine only has 1 through 4 data because a Category 5 is relatively unlikely to occur. Yeah.
3: Four is even very, very unlikely to occur. Yeah. But and, forces of one or two are common. So. And just
0: by to help us understand what was, for example, Hurricane Irene that hit in 2011. Hurricane
4: Irene came uh, in as a, I believe, a two in New York and it. Uh, Decreased By the time it hit Vermont, it was actually downgraded to a tropical storm. Oh, okay. But even at that, it was, it was absolutely devastating. I mean, I remember sitting in a room similar to this that we're in today, uh, speaking with some first responders from Maine who had gone to Vermont. And, I mean, they, they had this sort of hollow-shocked look. And they don't shock easy, those guys, saying, and people said, so what was it like? And they just said, it is worse than any, everything you've heard, it is so much worse than that. So um, this is one of the things that I wanted to raise. After Hurricane Irene in Vermont, there are quite a lot of very good uh, publications. They're all online. You can Google them quite well of the lessons learned, the communities that bounced back fastest and a couple of things that I'm recalling are um, some towns, the roads, there were two roads left of, you know, 16 major roads and 35, you know, something like that, of that scale and what they found that they used for uh, first responding were the trail networks because those were not necessarily down in the rivers, but up through going through the woods. So hiking trails. Hiking and... um, ATV. ATV trails. trails. And that's something that we have started to map more in our maps, because if you can't get through along the roads, which often follow the coast, maybe you can take uh, an ATV and, and get to an isolated area using the trail system. And they found that was the case in Vermont. Another thing that really registered with me was the towns that bounced back fastest were those that established places for people to go within, whether it's churches, community centers, granges, what have you, and people who could then sort of look after, literally look after the kids. Because when people are dealing with such devastation in their homes... They don't want to show that, you know, to their, their three-year-old, because mm-hmm. they're just trying to keep it together themselves. And so that some of those community institutions, which are very strong in rural areas and in down east Maine, were super important for um, some of the communities in Vermont to be able to bounce back faster. And it was also a way to protect themselves from um, prying eyes, if you will. You know, people coming in to find out, so tell me, you know, microphone right in your face, how's it going? <laughs> you know, they could, they could just be by themselves and take care of things.
1: Yeah, I'd like to just build on what, what Judy's saying. Uh, one of the things that came out of Superstorm Sandy, so similar to Irene, but you know, hit New York, New Jersey and uh, had a really, really big impact. The, the Wells National Estuarine Research Reserve down in Wells, Maine, um, held what was called the Sandy Lessons. And they invited municipal officials from the impacted communities in New Jersey to come up and talk to municipal officials in maine, and also the folks in Maine went down to look at the New Jersey communities that were impacted and It was fascinating because number one, municipal officials have this connection amongst each other because they 're municipal officials, um, but you know a couple a couple of the lessons really that were learned out of that. Um, Number one, it was just a great way to bring uh, folks together to talk about a common issue. You know, we, had not, we have not had a Sandy-like event, yet we easily could, because that was an extra-tropical event. It was a hurricane that became extra-tropical and massive and it could have hit Maine. Um, so now those communities have a sense of what might happen. But some big lessons that came out of that was related to what you're talking about. People are devastated, they've lost their houses. In most communities, the emergency evacuation shelter is the school. Problem is, you want to try to get back to normal as quickly as possible. And if your evacuation center is the school, you can't get kids back in the school. So a lot of communities that are now thinking about up- designating other areas as their evacuation sh- shelters mm-hmm. so that the school can open and be open to try to bring back a sense of norm to the communities. Mm-hmm. And also the other, one of the other big things that came out was debris management. Nobody knew how to take care of the amount of debris, acres and acres and acres of debris that was caused by the storm down there. So communities that had agreements with other communities or with private organizations, shopping centers, already in place to store debris, they were much better uh, prepared than other communities that didn't know what to do with acres of debris laying around in the streets. So really, really interesting.
2: And and DEP has recently put out some guidance on how to... um, put together debris management plans and there's been some good work done I think um, in some of the other regional planning councils um, that can probably be found online um, example plans um, that have been prepared for communities in southern Maine yeah Andrew Scott
4: of the County Council of Governments actually I can give that to you to put on on the, the website when you the follow-up to this show it's just finished.
0: So for listeners who want to learn more about these issues um, later on by getting online, just so you know, we're going to be posting a lot of these resources and links on um, the Maine Sea Grant webpage for this show. So you'll be able to look at seagrant.umaine.edu slash coastal conversations, and you'll find this show linked from there, and you'll find the archive of the show as well as all the links that folks are talking about for more resources. Um, yeah, Judy.
4: So one thing that I just wanted to say, um, when we were talking about tools and what communities have done, and uh, we we've been talking about some of the things that that we provide. But I, I also wanted to share some of the things that we've learned, that we've heard that the towns have done, because there's a um, there's a pretty gritty um, adaptable. I'm not saying that well. There, there's. The folks that are dealing with living on the coast, especially in Downey's, Maine, have done quite well for 400 years, and they've got a few things figured out. And One one example that I wanted to share was in Beals, where um, you've got about one of the largest concentrations of the the Downey's fishing fleet that comes ashore or works the waters near Beals and Jonesport. And what the uh, town landing... Uh, and the master and the selectmen did in Beals was a very simple, very elegant solution to responding to storm events. At the town landing, they raised the uh, hydroelectric poles on either side of the landing um, up, I don't know how much, enough so that a boat can get pulled out of the water very fast without having to remove any of the top radio equipment, what have you, the, the, st- the stuff that sticks, sticks up very high. Um, so that if a storm is coming, they can move um, significantly more boats much faster and just get them right out of the water. And it's just such a simple thing to have done. Not very expensive, but take some lead time and some planning. And um, I just wanted to share that because I do think that there's a tremendous amount of wisdom out there to be able to say, okay, this is our new reality, so what, what should we do to, to
1: accommodate it? Yeah, and I think one of the key things coming out of that is that's something that's perfectly transferable mm-hmm. Yes, that another community could look at and say, hey, we, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. That was done. It was successful. Let's see if we can do it in our community. And that's the same kind of adaptation that we're trying to um, help communities come up with are strategies that they can implement that then can be very easily taken and implemented anywhere else along the main coastline. Um, you know, we're, again, we're home rule. We like to do things on our own. But if we see something that our neighbor is doing that works well, there's nothing wrong with going ahead and picking that up and doing it. And, and main communities are not scared to do that. Um, and we have a whole slew of examples um, that we could share. I don't know if it's the right time or not, but uh, of, of those kind of transferable adaptation options that are already being undertaken.
0: Like what? Give um, us another example.
1: Well, uh, I mean, a number of communities in southern Maine of, of, in mid, and mid-coast Maine uh, in, in, in uh, Lincoln County have really looked at their wastewater treatment plants and the resiliency of those to different kinds of, of sea level rise and storm surge scenarios. And they're coming up with new standards on how to look at when does it make sense to... Repair in place your existing plant. What's the lifetime of the facilities on your plant? Um, what's the, how big is your population? Is it expected to increase? Is it expected to decrease? Are you going to be really dealing with really really bad issues with flooding in the near term, or is it you know is it far off? Uh, and then how do you balance all that from a cost to benefit standpoint in terms of making improvements to your plant? And the way we've been approaching these project it, projects is to Look at the various infrastructure on the plant and try to come up with a timeline of, you know, in 20 years, you're going to have to replace this piece of equipment anyway. So when you're going to have to do that, you look at how much is it going to cost to replace that? Or do you wait the 20 years and replace it at the end? But is sea level already going to be or a storm is going to be taking that piece of equipment out? So... A number of communities have undertaken that. Uh, Gunkwit, Wiscasset, Booth Bay Harbor are working on those issues um, right now. A number of other communities have actually decided to look at uh, sea level rise and storm surge and aspects of climate change and address them in their comprehensive plan Mm -hmm. um, and have written chapters in their comprehensive plan on, hey, here's how we, you know, we think these are going to be our vulnerabilities, these are our risks. Here are recommended, recommended strategies for moving forward. And the good thing is the comp plan is something you revisit. You don't write it in set it in stone. You revisit it. So as the science changes, as impacts change, the comp plan can change. Uh, and then floodplain ordinances. A lot of uh, communities have decided to address sea level rise by actually increasing their floodplain ordinance. So Jen was talking about flood insurance rate maps with base flood elevations. Well, main floodplain ordinances that are passed by communities have to have have to meet a standard of one foot of freeboard above the base flood elevation. So the base flood elevation is the 1% elevation or hundred year storm elevation. So let's say that's 10 feet, one foot of freeboard would be 11 feet. So that means the lowest member of uh, a house, structural member of a house would be at 11 feet. That's the minimum standard of Maine, but some communities have gone to three feet above base flood elevation. And there are a number of communities uh, up and down the coast that have adopted two feet. So they're already over and above state standards, which is already over and above minimum FEMA standards, which is just to meet the base flood elevation. So communities are really tackling this thing head on in terms of uh, not only ordinance, but also looking at infrastructure and also looking at aspects like marsh migration. Where are areas in a community where the natural buffering capacity is gonna maintain itself? Where, is, where are uh, culverts or roads going to impede the migration of marshes, for instance? and um, where can things like land trusts uh, look at conserved lands in terms of trying to maintain a landscape into the future because we know what values that marshes provide in terms of um, finfish habitat, uh, bird habitat, and also, like I said, buffers from storms. So there are a number of different things that communities are doing that are transferable to other locations, and I think that's the key. You know, Do something so somebody else doesn't have to reinvent the wheel.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think it's important to um, <clears throat> to also sort of recognize that the capacity of municipalities and communities to um, to make decisions and implement, even even just creating, developing, and implementing a comprehensive plan, is often beyond <clears throat> what a what a community is capable of doing. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are unable to do to implement. Uh, uh, adaptations to climate change and there are a couple of smaller things that have come up in down East Maine that I think have been really crucial um, actually uh, many little things related to working waterfront infrastructure like the uh, like the example in Beals that uh, Judy ha- uh, gave um, there's also for example the um, town of machias uh, has a downtown revitalization committee, and it's a small group of people who really love a wonderful little town and want to take what is basically a very run down, you know, sort of, uh, you know, past its prime downtown and, uh, and improve it. But it's also like so many of these communities in, in uh, coastal Maine is right on the water. It's right next to the Machias River, and uh, the main thoroughfare crosses the Middle River, and it's hugely vulnerable to storm surge inundation and to, um, you know, pulses coming down, uh, f- floods from uh, runoff um, from rain or uh, or snowmelt, and so that can, that. Uh, in that group in their planning has started to consider what it means for the downtown. If you're going to revitalize it, what does it mean that a certain whole stretch of downtown is slowly going to be flooding more and more and more often over time? And what does it mean if you're planting trees and, you know, planning where to put, uh, you know, infrastructure that allow people to walk along the water, et cetera. And so um, that's not necessarily sort of rebuilding anything or implementing a big, giant plan, but it is, you know, taking into consideration in the little baby steps that Machias, Maine, is doing um, to move them forward and adapt so that they're they're moving forward in, in awareness. Um, another thing that a lot of communities, especially ones that don't have the capacity to, to, um, to take on big planning projects... Um, that will, that are coming up, they're cropping up, is that some of these decisions ultimately will make themselves. Um, So there are lots of bridges and um, uh, major culverts and areas that are built up that are likely to flood in over time. And it's a difficult process for a community to get from the place where you decide that that, that's going to happen, and you know how you're going to respond to that. And that, and that takes time. Um, and so the sooner communities start to at least have the conversations about you know, the new reality and what that might mean, the difficult decisions, um, you know, we're grappling with whether the causeway, uh, the, the dike in Machias that crosses the Middle River should be tide gates as it is now, or whether it should be a bridge or some combination, and that's a decision that, that, um, that water will make for us if we don't sort of plan over time and, and decide. And and understand the consequences of each of the possible decisions over time. So just having the conversation is a a step in the right direction. Even if you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, I'm on the planning committee for my little town and we only have 500 people here. I don't know what to do. Um, Just bringing it up is Mm -hmm. the first step. And that's so crucial. And, that you know, I think that that's what we found in Washington County. When we started, um, we got a grant from HUD, uh, Housing and Urban Development, a federal grant, which seemed like, you know, it was a threat, I think, to many people down east that we were going to start talking about climate change in down east Maine with a federal grant behind us. Um, One of the things that we found was when we just sat people down, as Judy said, and we said, let's have a conversation about this there was a lot to say and a lot of forward movement that just happened in and of itself because we put them in a room and had the conversations.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a key point. Visioning, number one, is, is really, really important. And identifying what key issues are in a community. Mm-hmm. And they're going to vary from community to community and what, they're, what they value. And the question of, you know, what do you want your community to look like in 10, 20, 30 years really resonates if you sit down and think about it. You know, is it going? Do you want it to look exactly like what it looked like for you if you grew up there? Well, the climate—you know—climate is changing. We're seeing we are seeing changes that may not be the case. But what do you what do you value in your community? Is it the fishing economy? Is it you know access to the water? Is it all these different things? That these questions can come up in a visioning process. And again, yeah, you're right. You don't have to have uh, you know a whole planning staff or planning department to do a comp plan to do that. And that whole visioning process and, 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 and bringing out local issues and local champions to work on these things really brings people together, even though they may not agree on all of the different causes or something like that, they can still agree that they want to have a viable community moving forward mm-hmm. in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations, and our topic today is um, what communities can do and are doing um, in terms of climate change impacts on the coast of Maine. And my guests in the studio are Pete Slavinsky from the Maine Geological Survey. That was him just talking right there. Jen Curtis from Maine Floodplain Management Program, Tora Johnson from the University of Maine at Machias, and Judy East from the Washington County Council of Governments. Um, This is a pre-recorded show, so we are unfortunately not taking any calls. Um, We were just talking about what communities can do, and this is a question that I have because a lot of our towns have really tiny little budgets, right? So what kind of support services are there for communities um, to start tackling this stuff? Jen?
2: Um, I just want to uh, make a plug at this point, the, the main coastal program and through a lot of different channels is doing a lot of great work, um, a number of great projects are underway at any given time, uh, one that's going on right now that's going to go away is to helping communities uh, with this issue of what can they do and how can they do it. Uh, is a NOAA project of special merit uh, being performed through the coastal program. It's uh, titled, Shoring Up Maine's Water Dependent Economy, Incorporating Coastal Hazard Risk Management into Maine's Working Waterfront Assets. And the goals of the project are to improve the existing data that's available. And, And when I say data, I mean you know information on the working waterfronts, the infrastructure, the types of access um, and incorporate that with um, some different types of economic data that might be important um, in terms of economic dependence on the working waterfront, the ocean um, access and um, then specifically pilot um, a couple areas and and do very specific uh, vulnerability assessments um, which is also um, termed resilience planning. Um, And I really like what Tora was saying on the topic of, you know, the climate will do some of this planning for us if we don't do it ourselves. It's, you know, another form of failing to plan is is planning to fail. So, um, but (laughs) creating uh, these kinds of channels, leaving trails for others to follow, um, saying specifically, you know, here's the data, Um, Here's the types of things you want to look at Um, and then also another outcome of this our goal of this project is to update the um, coastal construction uh, Guidebook, so I think that will be really helpful as well, and that'll just be some guidelines uh, for coastal development that um, planning groups and others uh, can consider in their building and development Great great Judy yeah, I wanted to add to that that the uh, coastal program also
4: provides annually um, two grant programs: the Shore and Harbor uh, Grant, um, Shore and Harbor Management Grants, which uh, Downey's towns have used for you know GIS mapping of mooring areas, new mooring ordinances. But there's also a grant called the Coastal Communities Grant, and we're just finishing up implementation of one that um, is installing ten new rain gauges along the Washington County coast and uh, the, the reason for this is this goes to the extreme precipitation that we've been seeing in the last several decades really and it's, it's growing in, in frequency and intensity but also in very localized bursts and when you have an extreme precipitation event the um, The uh, uh, Department of Marine Resources rules, I don't know them chapter and verse, but a certain amount of rain over a 24-hour period, and there is an automatic closure. There is an assumption of of shellfish beds, that, that they must be closed because of that much rain. And we can get the exact details of that. But the reason for adding more rain gauges is that you get a far finer granularity of information along the coast so we're going from three rain gauges now to 13 so that um, they'll the Department of Marine Resources can choose not to close a shellfish area because they know that yes there was a lot of rain but it was it did not fall in that in that bay it, it fell two bays over so those sorts of, of uh, What what the beauty of the Coastal Communities Grant on a region wide basis is goes again back to towns don't have a lot of money um, or a lot of capacity, but working together, you can improve the. the information systems, like these rain gauges, and they're by the way connected to the internet, so anyone can look at them. It's it's weather underground. Once they're we literally they're just being installed right now. <laughs> I think the very last one is going in this week, um, and then they'll they'll come into the whole uh, network of rain gauges coastwide. Um, to improve that 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 information.
1: Yeah, the Coastal Communities Grant um, is is something. The program has been really effective at actually furthering municipal resiliency up and down the whole coast. I mean, I can uh, communities from Damariscotta, Vinylhaven, Haven, Islesboro, Peaks Island, Agunga, Booth Bay Harbor, it was cast, and have all facilitated their resiliency process through those Coastal Community Grants. And you guys probably have a whole other list of communities. Mm-hmm. Yep. Stonington also had a Coastal Community Grant to look at their waterfront infrastructure and as it relates to sea level rise and storm surge. But a lot of these communities are using these, these relatively small grant programs to kickstart the process. So it's to get your baseline vulnerability, to understand your risks, and then develop a more in-depth local process for how to actually deal with those things. A lot of them are just to get that baseline information, and some of them are, you know, some of them are actually trying to do a little bit more with, more than that with their grant. But it's really to kickstart the process so that a municipality can move forward on their own to really be thinking about these issues, yet have the data and the tools in place for them to actually go do good decision making around the issues.
0: Great. Um, Amazingly, we only have a few minutes left. Um, We have so much more to talk about. Um, But I have to ask you guys the elephant in the room question, Um, because we can't not, right? So how do you handle in the work that you do the fact that there are, and this relates to a comment that you made earlier, Judy, that people might get engaged in debate about the source of climate change, um, and there are people who are... Questioning whether climate change is even happening. How do you how do you deal with those kinds of questions? I think the buzzword right now is whether someone is a climate denier or not. How do you handle that in the work that you do, and maybe just sort of a couple of philosophical thoughts on this as we kind of wind down. So, in my research,
3: I've I've asked that question really directly, and and I've done uh, you know I work primarily with down East Maine, and I've done. Uh, survey research as well as interview research with folks down east to sort of understand exactly that question, not just who does and doesn't believe that climate change is real. Climate change is real, um, but there are folks who are either unsure or, or deny that it's that it's real. Um, so not only who does and doesn't, but also how do you how do you move beyond that, and what do, how do you engage? And so um, when you ask them about issues like are you concerned about frequent flooding? Are you concerned about where lobsters are, uh, and at any given time of the year, etc.? You find that mostly, eighty plus um, to ninety percent of folks actually are concerned about those things. So, talking about the local issues, the immediate problems that are of concern to them—that's the way to engage, and that's what we've worked on specifically in Down East Maine, and have I—I I think I've, we surprised ourselves with how successful we've been to be able to have these conversations and move actions forward. That's great. Yeah.
2: I think um, over and over again I hear tying it to the local economy, as you know, Thora was saying, things that are yeah. locally important. You know, if it's your main street economy, uh, particularly a lot of the main streets are at risk of flooding. So. Um, coming up with ways to do cost-benefit analysis or things like that for a specific area can make it more personal to somebody at a local level.
1: I'll just add that I think a lot of it has to do with messaging also. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we there are very different ways to frame the same exact message. You could call it planning for climate change and sea level rise, or you, or you could call it Planning to create a more resilient community. Mm-hmm. You're still doing the same thing because storms are still going to be hitting that community regardless of whether or not sea level's rising. We know it is, but regardless of whether or not it is, there's going to be a big storm sometime in that in that community's future. So you have to plan for that. So marrying the two together always makes sense in terms of messaging. Is you know, you, you could say it one way or you could say it another way, yet the end goal is still to get the community to move forward thinking about. How are we going to be preparing for scenario X or Y or Z?
4: I guess I would only add that we're working with municipalities. Uh, the cause of why their budgets are being blown apart by blown out culverts is kind of sometimes can be irrelevant. They know it's happening. They see it. They're paying mm-hmm. for it repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, it the cause, you don't even have to talk about the cause because mm-hmm. the uh, the frequency of the storm events is 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 right in their faces.
0: Yeah. Well, amazingly, we've come to the end of our time, which happened very, very quickly. Um, So our topic today on Coastal Conversations was how Maine municipalities um, are preparing for climate change impacts and what they're seeing and what these folks in the studio with us here today are doing to help communities Address different impacts on the waterfront related to climate change. Um, a lot of different resources and tools were mentioned, so I just want to remind listeners that um, a whole bunch of links are going to be posted on um, the show's website at seagrant.umaine.edu/coastalconversations. And I'd like to thank our guests for their time and for your good work. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Judy East from the Washington County Council of Governments, Tora Johnson from the University of Maine at Machias. Jennifer Curtis from the Maine Floodplain Management Program, and Pete Slavinsky from the Maine Geological Survey. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from Maine Sea Grant at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our show. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning.